Hey there, everyone. This is Dan Fagella here with the Tech Emergence Podcast, where we bring you to the intersection of technology and psychology. And as of late, we've had a great number of interviews, specifically in the domain of neuroscience. Today, I'm lucky enough to have the author of The Myth of Mirror Neurons, also professor of cognitive neuroscience at UC Irvine, Dr. Greg Hickok, on the line with me right now. Greg, how are you? I'm well. Good to be on with you. Yes, indeed. Um, I, uh, I wanted to, to delve in first to a particular area of your research that I think would be interesting for our uh, audience who's... who's uh, uh, we've, we've done a lot in terms of interviews around sort of modeling the brain, a deeper understanding of the brain, sort of making the brain less of a black box. I know a domain of your focus specifically is computational neuroanatomy. Give us a quick overview of what that is before we go a bit deeper. Well, it's kind of the next level of brain mapping, essentially. So uh, historically, what people have done and when they're trying to understand the broad organization of the brain is to map the brain functionally. So we want to know what parts of the brain are doing vision or language or uh, motor control or whatever. And we have reasonable, reasonably good broad maps along uh, along those lines. But that's not the end game. That's kind of just doing the, uh, the geography of the system. But we want to get a little bit deeper. We want to get into the geology of it, so to speak, and understand what the computations are that underlie these different regions and how they interact computationally um, to give rise to complex behaviors. And so that's, that's where the field needs to go. That's where the field is going. Um, and so we're working on that in a few different domains. Got it. And, and uh, just as a uh, uh, sort of a preamble as to the, the functionality of, of such models and where they might be able to, to take us, um, w- how far along are we now in computational neuroanatomy at all? It sounds as though it's relatively new, again, the newer way of modeling the brain. Um, are there functional forays into this world that have gleaned useful, fruitful uh, insights into the brain's function, or is it more of a frontier that we know is there, but we've got to squeeze the insights um, out of it? Uh, no, there's been a lot of work in this area. I mean, we're calling it computational neuroanatomy, um, which is essentially mapping computations onto brain circuits that we know about. People, and another term that's been used in this way, uh, or to refer to this sort of work, is just computational neuroscience. And there, the game is to try to understand either how to perform uh, computations that, as we understand them psychologically, so people develop models of different functions uh, and develop, you know, computational computational models of these things. And then we want to ask, well, how does the brain? We can do it digitally on a computer. We want to ask, how does the brain do it? Um, and so we look at the properties of neurons, properties of circuits, how these things can learn, and work out how computationally the brain can do stuff. Um, computational neuroanatomy is just kind of uh, working towards that level of description from the brain map perspective. So the, the typical functional maps that you see in textbooks or you know, kind of cartoon-like, yep. um, we're trying to take those map areas and instead of relate them to labels for functions like language, we're trying to map them on or relate them to the stuff that the computational neuroscientists are doing. Got it. Yeah, I've, I'm uh, personally more familiar, at least in terms of the term, uh, of computational neuroscience rather than computational uh, neuroanatomy. In terms of what computational neuroscience has been able to glean thus far, maybe in terms of meaningful insight for treatment of particular conditions, meaningful insight as to functions of different brain regions or portions of the brain, um, what has computational neuroscience thus far sort of eked out uh, from that data and from that kind of modeling that's already gone on? Yeah, there's 
there's a lot of interesting things in a lot of different domains. Uh, so people are working on visual system stuff, trying to figure out how uh, visual cortex can uh, code information and perform computations. People are working on this in, in memory domains at a fairly specific level. Um, motor control, uh, people are now building um, uh, neurally realistic, at least approximations um, of, of circuits that actually do things. So you can you can build a what's called a spiking network model, which simulates individual neurons and puts thousands and thousands of these in a simulation. And then uh, some people um, uh, put uh, use these models to to uh, control robots and and do things using what we believe is is how the brain is actually doing stuff. So, for example, detecting um, visual information and guiding behavior action towards uh, something, um, trying to find um, uh, spatial maps, uh, represent spatial information, like in the, the Morris water maze, uh, and, and even some machines, you know, play kind of uh, robot soccer and do different things like that. So there's been a lot of a lot of progress, and some people are starting to use bits and pieces of this progress toward uh, potential therapeutic uh, benefits. Yeah. So it sounds as though the the benefits as of now of computational, if we just stick with computational neuroscience at least for now, um, it has been in in aiding the computation of our own devices, figuring out, okay, well, you know, the human mind can do this pretty well, or our brain can pull this off pretty well. Um, how can we get a sensor uh, or a robot uh, to do something similar, or, you know, control a movement in a similar way, or detect something and, and create a behavior in a similar way? Um, most of the, or, or many of the benefits, it sounds like, are sort of in that domain, informing almost, you know, robotics or artificial intelligence or something along those lines. Yeah, there's been a lot of excitement about that. Uh, some people are using brain-inspired um, models to develop better AI systems um, uh, for stores of information or retrieval of information or you know, speech perception, kind of automated um, speech recognition systems. People are exploring that sort of thing. Um, potentially, this sort of work can be used to develop better you know, cochlear implants or other sorts of um, neural prostheses, which is just starting to be explored. Yeah, I, I happen to be of the belief that neuroprostheses are, are actually of, of a grand and vast ethical import. Um, so, leaning a little bit more into the future potentially, so just to, well, before we move along, it sounds as though, at least at, as of now, although I imagine maybe there has been, comput uh, computational neuroscience, have there been some lessons gleaned that have also informed maybe pharmacological treatments or anything along those lines, or really thus far has it been more in artificial intelligence and robotics and sensors and things like that? Um, you know, honestly, I'm not sure about the pharmacological implications of it. Certainly, these circuits are running on various neurotransmitters. Of course, and that's yeah. A, yeah, a big part of it. Um, the the work that I'm more familiar with is, is doesn't deal as much with that. Although I do know of some people who are working with neuromodulator systems and and things like that. So, um, but I, I don't specifically know of any pharmacological work. Some of the most dramatic applications, not so much of computation, explicit computational models, but in terms of neuroprostheses that can take advantage of this stuff is the observation that if you look at patterns of activity in neurons or uh, regions of cortex, you can decode information from those patterns of activity, for example, motor plans um, or uh, acoustic representations. And so uh, it, huh. it, it, it's possible now to implant a, 
an electrode array in the motor cortex of an individual who is locked in, so-called, or yep. um, uh, and they can control robotic arms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we've, thinking about doing that, yep. yeah. It, we, we've uh, we've interviewed I think three or four people from BrainGate, um, yeah. out out in uh, in uh, Brown there, and uh, yeah, that 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 work I consider to be rather fascinating, and I think that that uh, obviously that's there's got to be a, a vast uh, degree of of computational neuroscience going on in order to make those connections happen. Yeah, um, well, in in a lot of cases we don't always know what you know the codes the neural codes are computationally that underlie those. We know which brain areas to put electrodes, and then we kind of assume that the machine can learn patterns to generate you know control circuits and so on um, operations. Yeah, the, the, that's we always, yeah. We don't always know. Um, we we are getting close maybe to being to going a bit beyond that and going within the brain. For example, in my um, uh, own um, area of research, which is speech and language. Um, there are examples of patients who have lost the ability to produce fluent speech. And in some cases, this seems to be due to a disconnection of, of brain areas that are no longer talking to each other, but are themselves intact. It may be possible, if we understand how these circuits are organized and what they're doing computationally, to put you know, pairs of or sets of um, elect electrode arrays inside to reconnect brain areas that can uh, then uh, be used for rehabilitation. Big time. At, at least it's theoretically possible to do something like that. It just takes the work to, to figure it all out. It, it seems, I mean, well, here, you know, if, if, if they're moving the robotic arms and checking their emails by thinking about it, I think that's perfectly reasonable, uh, actually. You know, it's, 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 we're not, it's not proven anything at all, but I think it's, it's, it's certainly uh, maybe not even overly optimistic at all to assume that that, that may in fact be, be possible. Um, in terms of some of the future ramifications and applications and, and where this might take us, you know, you would just label, you just uh, listed off one, which might be, hey, you know, I'm getting a, we're, we're, we're starting to get a decent understanding about uh, computational uh, neuroscience and neuroanatomy with respect to representing um, speech and, and uh, fluency in speech and language, um, and that maybe if we understand how these models work and we understand how these regions connect at a, at a, a little bit of a more dialed-in level, we may be able to connect individual regions in a way so as to uh, reproduce and, and reconnect those domains and permit uh, speech to occur, again, if we actually understand the models that are underneath them and, and sort of the activity that's going on at a meta level there. Um, what are some of the other further applications of computational neuroscience um, that might, you know, come about in the coming decade or so, ones that maybe you're excited about or maybe a little bit more optimistic about. I'm interested in your thoughts. Um, mostly the, the things that we've hit on so far, I think there are potential applications in AI. The brain seems to be doing computations in a fundamentally different way than digital computers. It's highly parallel, um, uh, flexible in a lot of ways. Uh, and sparse, sparse coding, all sorts of things like that, that, um, that computer scientists can potentially learn from. And I know people are developing some of these brain-inspired approaches to AI. So I think um, my guess is that that's going to be a, a, a prominent area of expertise as we understand how the brain computes to try to simulate it because it's doing an awful lot with some pretty squishy stuff in there um, as opposed to the precise digital switches that we have in digital computers. Um, so that's one application, and I do think that neural processes are uh, a real thing, um, and uh, <laughs> yeah. offer a lot of hope for the future. Yes, for sure. So, um, 
just in terms of your own thoughts on neuroprosthesis, you know, the work that BrainGate is doing, obviously, is, uh, you know, they have some pretty intensive clinical trials. You know, you, you can't just uh, get a robotic arm plugged into the top of your skull uh, for fun, probably even if you're, uh, you have a lot, a lot of money. Um, you probably still can't. Um, do, do you foresee some of maybe those applications, such as what's going on in, in BrainGate, being maybe out and about in the world in a more meaningful way, in a more ameliorative way for some of these conditions in the coming decade? Or, or do you see them as maybe more functional, but still sort of locked up lab-wise um, in the coming 10 years or so? Um, my guess is that there, we're going to see it more and more. Um, so, I mean, if you think about cochlear implants, for example, that is essentially a neural process. Oh, it is. Yes. Um, and uh, so, and, and that has become... Ubiquitous. Why, yeah. Yeah. Why Not a question. And very successful. Um, so I, I, there's no reason why we should, we couldn't develop artificial retinas um, or uh, artificial, you know, motor control circuits uh, or processes that plug into to the motor system, and then start thinking about ways to patch up um, breakdowns within the brain itself, communicating from one area to the next. I think that could be potentially um, very useful. Yeah, and I think the, you know, when you brought up BrainGate, I mean, I, I'm I just I never ceases to amaze just the degree that brain plasticity uh, applies not just to our existing connections and wet stuff uh, upstairs, but also to what it might get plugged into, you know, that, that we can adapt to and use and get used to and control um, uh, with our minds alone devices outside of our minds due, due to its ability to adapt. You know, there's, there's talk, at least in, in some circles, you know, there's folks like Kurzweil and, and other people that are uh, certainly um, optimists in terms of uh, kind of the progression of technology and maybe the speed thereof. A lot of people might, might see some of Kurzweil's timelines as a bit aggressive um, around being able to replicate a mind and maybe, maybe replicate some degree of, of uh, you know, maybe, maybe, some level of function of maybe a human child at some point and, and potentially a, a, a capable sort of intelligence maybe in decades ahead approaching humanity uh, itself and, and, and certainly maybe uh, going beyond that. I know the, the statements of Elon Musk and, and of Hawking as of late, I'm, I'm not much of a henny-penny sky is falling kind of guy and I certainly didn't feel that way when I heard them bring up their concerns, but some people think that they're legitimate. Uh, these developments of intelligences beyond ourselves, might some of the further reaches of, of um, cognitive neurosciences take us there? Or do, do you see all of that as bunk? Do you see some of those concerns as worthwhile? What are your thoughts there, Greg? I think, I think we're a ways off from building a, oh, certainly. a, human, a human mind. Um, I mean, quite a ways off. The, the problem, you see a lot of people speculating about um, being able to develop intelligent uh, minds, which, you know, you can build an intelligent machine that can do better than a human at chess and lots of other things. Um, but um, one thing that's fairly typical of most of these pro approaches is they take some kind of computational principle like deep learning or something like that and then and then try to um, apply it very broadly. And, and the, the tacit assumption is that if you, if you apply something like that and just get enough enough nodes together and enough um, kinds of computational power and then let it learn um, that you're going to end up with something, you know, approximating a human. And I think, um, or some, some intelligent mind. 
I think the problem there is that um, there isn't going to be one computational mechanism that uh, that the brain runs on, and a key is the architecture of these systems. It's not just the the broad computation uh, computational strategy that these things use. You need to configure these kinds of networks um, together in an architecturally intelligent way. And presumably this is what evolution has done over millions of years um, to configure systems that allow us to do lots and lots of different things. Um, and it, that is going to take a, a really long time to figure out because the architecture is the key and, it, and there are a lot of parameters to work out. Um, and so I, I don't think we're going to be able to to take a, a simple or, or even a complex single kind of computational approach um, and, and easily scale that up into something that can do lots of different things like the human mind can. Do you foresee, at least hypothetically, let's say, this is just out of raw curiosity because this is your domain of expertise, 200 years from now um, with, with a consistent and vigilant focus on, uh, on cognitive neuroscience, on... on uh, de-black boxifying the mind, um, do you potentially foresee, even in, in hundreds of years, the, the capacity to, um, to replicate or approach human intelligence or even go beyond it? Or, or do you see some kind of inherent limitation in, in us ever taking what's happening in the wetware upstairs and putting that into metal or even putting that into wetware that we make? I don't see any inherent limitations, and I, you know, I can imagine a day when someday, you know, we understand how how the mind works and how the brain creates the mind, um, and we might be able to replicate it in some man-made digital substrate. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, but given the complexity of this thing, I mean, I have no doubt that we'll make a lot of progress. We've made a huge amount of progress in the last twenty years compared to the previous 50 years, say, and I, I expect the rate of progress to, to continue to increase. Um, but this is, the scope of this problem is massive. I mean, it, it is, a, a, it, it's the scope of essentially what we're dealing with in the entire universe, but inside our heads. Yeah. The, num the number of, of, uh, of neurons involved, 80 billion is the current estimate, trillions of connections, um, lots and lots of moving parts, different strategies for coding, different kinds of computations. It's just ridiculously complex. And um, I, don't, I don't see that as something that's going to easily give up its secrets within the next couple of generations. <laughs> give up its secrets. I, I, I don't mind that way of saying it. I don't see the brain giving up its secrets. So our, our, our lifetime's probably a nay from Greg's perspective here. Um, Greg, uh, we're, we're right about on time. I, I sincerely appreciate you sharing your thoughts and insights from the, the particular um, perspective of, of the world that you focus in, in, in cognitive neuroanatomy. Um, if people want to learn more about your research, uh, where would they go on the web to find you? Um, if you just Google my name, Gregory Hickok, you should be able to find me pretty easily, or you can um, check out my book, Myth the Mirror Neurons. It has it describes some of my work and what it's uh, connected to, um, but you shouldn't have too much trouble finding, finding me on the web. Cool. Very good. Well, Greg, thank you again so much for being here on the podcast with Tech Emergence. My pleasure. It was good to talk to you. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker, 
uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential. And make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>